And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance. But I did not kill my wife, and you don't care. And I believe I can fly, cause I'm the king of the world. From the 90s to nothing, I'll be there. What is it? Lemonade. Welcome to this little old podcast here on this uh, brand new network. Uh, of course, this is, as you heard in the musical intro, 90 to nothing. We are talking all about our favorite 90s nostalgia movies, especially from uh, this season, the year 1990. Because all those movies that we're talking about this season, they're turning 30 years old. So that's going to be the uh, the premise for this entire season, but of course you is this is this really a new season though, or is this a reboot? This is I think we're I called... think this is I think this is ninety to nothing rebirth. Yeah, this is this is the reboot. This is the uh, the reboot. The uh, the previous stuff that you may have heard on you know somewhere else that doesn't really count. We're gonna we're just gonna cut that out and we're gonna like fully redo this thing. And speaking of that, we got to make introductions again. I of course am one of your hosts, Russell Sellers, and joining me. As always, my cut above, Mr. Sam Neely. I am, of course, the cut above. You are the Sam cut above. That, that's your nickname from now to the end of this episode. It's an ironic nickname because I have not gotten a haircut in two months because we are all under quarantine. I am right there with you, brother. Uh, yeah. The uh, We could all really use the subject of our uh, our talk today. That's absolutely. Um, first off, though, uh, Russell, what are you doing to kind of keep yourself occupied during the quarantine? You're working from home. You're yeah. taking days off. Are you? You know, uh, originally I was going to be taking some days off prior to this quarantine because uh, my fiance and I were supposed to go on a little vacation to Florida for a little while, and then all the shit hit the fan, and uh, we had to cancel all of those plans. But uh, that turned into working from home. And that's kind of what we've both been doing uh, while we've been locked away in uh, in our house. But, you know, quarantine has given us a chance to watch a bunch of shows and movies that uh, we had had on our list forever and just hadn't had time to get to. And now it's like I have an abundance of time, so why not? Yeah, I hear you. I, I tell you one thing quarantine has done is that I have saved a shit ton on gas. And Good I already God, saved, yes. saved a shit ton on gas because I drive a Prius, but I don't think I've bought <laughs> gas in weeks. So. Dude, dude, same. I I can't remember the last time I actually had to like go to the gas station to really fill my car up. Uh, no, yeah. I, I did have to go because uh, my tag expired in March, so I did have to go and get my uh, emissions test, which you have to do here in Georgia. Uh, uh, and I went ahead and filled my tank while I was out and then bought a bunch of groceries and liquor. Nice. Uh, man, we're we're actually pretty good still on liquor right now, uh, although we have made short work of some Blackberry whiskey. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, we actually, uh, because we buy our toilet paper at Costco anyway, so when, every, when there was that big run on toilet paper at the beginning of March, yeah. we had no problem. We, we had a whole load of it, and we actually bought some just today. But we still have some left over from before, so we've we've not had that toilet paper issue that everyone's talking about. Yeah, same. Uh, we actually bought some before the quarantine stuff even hit, like a week before. We just done our usual gro- uh, grocery run at Publix and said, you know what, we're uh, we're running low, so let's go ahead and grab uh, our usual uh, case of toilet paper. And then all the shit hit the fan, and we were like, oh well, <laughs> glad we already bought some. 
Yeah. So I know that uh, you and I both have been playing a lot of Jackbox. Yeah. That, because we've played with each other. Yes. Uh, or, and uh, what other kind of like, I guess, shows or games or kind of different things that keep you occupied have you been, have you been using during this time? Uh, I've actually finally had a lot of time to play some video games. So I sat down and I finally finished uh, Spider-Man on PS4 and I've gotten uh, probably a good maybe halfway or a little better into uh, God of War. Uh, and it's it's kind of crazy to actually like, have time to sit down and play. Uh, I've read a bunch of classic uh, Marvel and DC books thanks to uh, their respective streaming apps. Okay. And, uh, that's been fun to do because I've, I've been like, you know, I always say the same thing. One day I will get around to reading all of these classic things that I want to read. But I just don't have time because work takes up eight hours of my day, and then there's oh, so, yeah. so many other things to do. And now it's like, hell, I got I got time. Uh, I'll sit down and finally start doing it. And it, it's not, as well it, use it. Yeah, it feels nice to to get started on that. And of course, we're still doing uh, what workouts we can here at home. Uh, You're trying- definitely doing better than I am on that in that <laughs> in that way. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't get any any further than taking the dog for long walks. <laughs> Our dog is feeling a little uh, cooped up. We have tried to take her on a couple of walks, but we have a pretty big backyard, so we let, let her run around and do her thing back there. Uh, but yeah, we we found some online uh, workout programs that we've been doing. We try to work out like between three, uh, four days a week if possible, and uh, it's at all sorts of weird times depending on how busy we each are. Uh, her job tends to keep her a little busier than mine does, but uh, there are still days whenever I'm like, I can't do anything except uh, sit here at the computer and uh, work on whatever projects I've been assigned. Yeah, I've, I've been working like, I, I work more hours. My wife noticed this too and pointed it out to me that I seem to work more hours when I'm working from home. And I'm like, that's actually true. And I think part of it is because I don't think about it because I'm not driving to work and, and then driving home. True. I'm getting up and going straight into the home office I have set up. I am working on, you know, kind of a sweet little home office setup so that I've got these little USB and HDMI switches. So I just push a few buttons to swap between my work computer and my home computer on my external monitor and everything. Man. And then uh, because I am a, a you know card-carrying citizen of ridiculous internet culture, I'm very into the Animal Crossing game on the Switch. <laughs> you know, I've, I haven't gone down the Animal Crossing rabbit hole. I don't think that one's really for me. But uh... So I thought that too, and, and because I've never been interested in an Animal Crossing game until now. And part of it's because of when the first one came out, I was 18. Like, I wasn't interested in, in something that was supposed to be for kids. But now all those kids are adults. And they're still playing it, and I'm seeing all the stuff you can do. And if I had to describe it, it would be like SimCity meets The Sims meets Breath of the Wild. That's Because you run crazy. around gathering resources. Instead of cooking meals, like in Breath of the Wild, you're crafting furniture and things, and you're building a city or a town. And there's a social aspect that is really a lot of fun. It's, it's lacking because Nintendo does kind of suck it online, mm. but... It is a lot of fun just to like get together with your friends on their islands and trade off stuff. Like my brothers and I have gotten together several times, and there's an like there's sort of an in game stock market where people are always messaging each other, asking what turnips are selling for on their market, and going to sell their turnips at someone else's island. <laughs> 
my God, we're we're selling virtual vegetables. That's crazy. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of Breath of the Wild, though, it was uh, kind of interesting that my fiance is now interested in starting that game. Uh, she's not much on like adventure games or whatever, but one of her friends has been playing it and talking about it a lot. So she was like, "Hey, do you have that game for the Switch?" And I was like, "Yes, I do." Uh, yeah. Oh, it's great. I I was uh, I'm partway through my second playthrough. But then I was also playing it alongside. Uh, I hooked up my old Wii, and I'm playing through Twilight Princess again. That's one. Uh, and I my need wife to go back is, to. I think, on her third playthrough of Breath of the Wild. Damn, I have still not completed my first playthrough of it, so I'm I'm a bad gamer. But uh, uh, no, it's okay. There's there's no such thing as a bad gamer. Just don't tell white dudes on the internet that. Oh no, they uh, except for us, we're we're okay with the we're, fact that we're we're white dudes on the internet who like <laughs> yeah. are very happy that our uh, significant others and that other uh, women are more involved in gaming. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, let's move on to uh, the whole reason we're here and the reason people probably clicked on this podcast because we're talking about uh, a movie that is turning as all the movies we're going to talk about uh, this season are is turning thirty this year. Uh, and that would be the 1990 classic Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. Now, he's a guy who was in quarantine for a while. Good God, he's a he's a quarantine pro. This would be old hat to him. Like this, this would be nothing. He'd be like, "This is this is every day. This is a Tuesday for me. Uh, oh yeah, a never ending Tuesday." He doesn't know the difference between one day to the next, and now we all kind of know how he feels. Uh, time has so, become that flat circle for us. <laughs> oh yeah so there is something that i've always kind of wondered about edward scissorhands though because it's framed as it's framed as a uh and, and i'm i'm saying this as though it's just a natural conversation but you and i already planned this so let's sure. let's go ahead and let our listeners know this is what we're talking about today peeking it's behind the curtain story, episode one yeah it's framed as a story of that a grandmother is telling to her granddaughter about something that happened when she was younger yep what we've decided to do is we started from the question is it a true story that she's telling her granddaughter we both kind of think no but now we're curious what really happened yep Um, and that's what that's where we're going from we uh we still come at it i think from two different places Uh, i think we do while we both um i mean we agreed immediately that there's no way this story happened the way that she's telling it But the question that hangs over both of us now is, is this story a pure fiction fairy tale that she's just making up to get her uh, annoying granddaughter to go to sleep? Or is this an embellished story where the characters, the people in the story are real, but maybe the events surrounding them have been turned into a, a bit of a tall tale, which is actually a thing for Tim Burton later on in his career uh, in one of uh, our favorite movies from him, actually, in Big Fish. Oh, but, yeah. Like, I, that's actually, that's that's a huge part of, of what, I, uh, what I've come up with for this podcast is based on Big Fish. Excellent. So there's two guys, yeah. So, if you want me to go ahead and start. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. let's, let's I'll, start I'll with, with your framing of this movie. How, how does it play for you? So to me, uh, there's two big things. The first one you actually brought up without with, – uh, I didn't know if you were going to bring it up or not. Uh, the first one, though, is that you did bring up Big Fish. Uh, I think that's the first, uh, the first thing I want to bring up when it comes to how this story is told uh, because one of the big issues – now, Big Fish, as opposed to Edward Scissorhands, uh, Big Fish is not a Tim Burton original. It is based on a book by Daniel Wallace. 
I have not read the book. Uh, I don't know what was cut for the book or what was cut for the movie, what was added to the movie. But we've seen enough Tim Burton movies that were based on other properties, such as uh, Planet of the Apes, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Alice in Wonderland, to know that it is he, it's his choice what he leaves in and what he cuts out. So certain things that he did leave into the movie of Big Fish that were very uh, telling, I think, are the fact that the, the big one I wanted, that I want to focus on is the witch mm. in Big Fish. Uh, she is a witch that Edward Bloom meets when he's a little boy. He grows up. He meets a little girl. He comes back to her town as an even older adult, and she has grown up. And then he leaves, and she becomes the witch from the beginning of the story. Now, of course, uh, Edward's son, William, says, well, that doesn't make any sense. Because in order to be the witch, then you'd have to have already been old when he was a little boy. And she basically, she gives just kind of a, a non-answer to that, saying, well, there's only two women to him, your mother and everyone else. But really, it's just telling how uh, how stories change, especially stories told in oral tradition, can change in ways that don't make internal sense. And that's what kind of I want to take to bring to the second thing that I'm taking into into my my idea of the Edward Scissorhands story. Yeah. And it's uh, Greek myths. Um, I know you and I both took the mythology class at Troy. Yep. Uh, we learned a lot of these old myths, and some of them had a particular god being birthed one way, and others had a particular god being birthed another way. Like in some stories, Aphrodite was one of the daughters of Zeus. In other stories, Aphrodite was a being that was spawned from when Uranus was castrated by Cronus. <laughs> um, but the same character with these two different origins and two different storylines is used in different places, or but, but kind of shown as the same character. And then the, the, the last thing that I, that I want to kind of bring into the intro of this is the way that the story, what prompts her telling the story. Uh, Kim, as an old woman, is asked by her granddaughter, Grandma, why does it snow? That's and I completely forgot about that line. And I did remember the end of the movie. She says, before him, it would never snow, and now it does. Mm -hmm. But... I did not remember the beginning that the way that the story is prompted is how does it snow? And it, so that reminds me of the idea of, um, sorry, uh, that reminds me of uh, something that I read from a, a blogger named Fred Clark, who was talking about just so stories, which is kind of these origin myths of things. And they're found throughout mythology. They're found throughout folklore, but the point of them is not to actually give the origin of something. Everyone knows that whatever origin it's giving is bullshit. The point of them is the story and the moral. So the, uh, I actually want to give an example of one. And there's it's the origin of the crow. And this is from uh, the Lenape people, uh, the Native American tribe in North America. And they tell the story of the world being too cold. So they go to the rainbow crow, who's the, a brightly colored, beautiful singing bird, 
and ask you know this crow to essentially be an emissary to bring back the summer. And so the crow goes and does this, and the creator says that he can't make it summer again, but he could give him fire to bring back. And so he gives the crow fire, and the fire the crow brings fire back, and it keeps people warm. But throughout, you know, because of it, because of him carrying fire and inhaling the smoke, it ruined his singing voice, and it burned all of his feathers black. And so the point of the story is not this is why crows look like that. The point is when you see a crow, remember the importance of self-sacrifice for the good of others. Yeah. There are a lot of stories, a lot of these old folkloric stories are like that. Remember remember this moral when you see this, because it's in this story of the origin. So what this story is that Kim is telling to her granddaughter is not, this is why it snows. It's when you see the snow, remember this message. Yeah. And this is the message, and this is what I think happened to her when she was younger. Uh, and as a morality tale, I think Edward Scissorhands works really, really well. The the whole, you know, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I think I think this one, yeah. And so, and this really, and when I when I get into actually what I think what I would say happened, and and when I say what I think happened, this isn't like oh, this is my fan theory of what the author meant. This is just my take. <laughs> um, but I think that. When you know when Kim was younger, she was you know she was a teenager. She had her younger brother Kevin. Uh, he was probably not that much younger than her, but in her mind, he was a lot younger than her. Yeah. Um. There was a guy, possibly named Edward, possibly not, but I'm going to call him Edward for the sake of argument. He was their gardener. He was kind of weird. He was very quiet. He was very shy, and she was fascinated by him. And he was really good as a gardener, and he did, you know, he did the gardens for everyone in town. Well, Kim kind of started developing a crush on him. Her boyfriend Jim was not a fan because he could kind of tell. But it turns out Edward was actually not interested in Kim. Edward was in a relationship with Kim's younger brother Kevin. But when they were. But when they were caught, Kevin turned on him and claimed Edward had attacked him. Mm. And it causes and it caused the town to completely turn on him as well and chase him off and he was basically a pariah from then on and moved away. She never saw him again. Eventually, you know, she grows up, she marries Jim. Um it's it's not a good marriage, but she doesn't know any better and she gets close to someone else this guy probably also not named edward but we'll call him edward but he's not the same gardener from younger from from when she was younger you know maybe he's a dog groomer or a hairstylist one or the other (laughs) um she gets very close to him and one of the reasons that she is so close to him is that he reminds her of this boy she knew when he when she was younger that her brother had thrown under the bus and at one point she's actually alone with him 
she and Jim have had a fight and she is alone with him and Jim comes in and at this time at this point it's snowing and the combination of Jim being angry probably drunk him attacking this man that she's so close to even if it was innocent and the snow just causes her to get upset and in fact Kim picks up a pair of garden shears and stabs Jim and that man that's and, a, that's really yeah. good so from there on you know of course from then on she kind of moves on I I, I don't know what happens after that but I think that the big point that she realizes is when she sees the snow, because maybe maybe the first event also happened during a snowfall. When she sees the snow, it reminds her that you should not ostracize people for being different or you should not bully people for refusing to fight back. It's there's there is a moral there, and maybe it's not even an internally consistent moral. But the story, the way that she tells her granddaughter, to me, that's it. It has those elements, but it's a fabricated tall tale about a boy named Edward, when really there were there were many Edwards throughout her life. Yeah, and the story she's telling takes elements from all of them. And then credits him when, in fact, in real life, she was the one who fought back. And you know that that is a fascinating way to uh, to read on the movie. And yeah, you know, I, I do like that. I like the idea of Edward being multiple people, like inspired by multiple uh, individuals throughout her life. Uh, and of course, the the pacifist kind of message of Edward Scissorhands of people who could conceivably fight back. Cause I mean, when you, I mean, Edward, even at one point in the movie is presented as potentially a, a lethal weapon yeah. uh, during the show and tell scene. Uh, because his, I mean, these are just like straight up knives on the end of his hands. Uh, oh, yeah. th- this dude could make, you know, short work of just about anybody. And he is as gentle a soul as you're ever going to find. He he does not see the world in violent terms in the way that you know I think most other people probably do. He he views it as uh, you know a a bit of an overwhelming experience at least from all the bright colors and everything. Especially when it, uh, as you watch this movie, it's told from his perspective. So the uh, this suburban neighborhood that he suddenly finds himself in is overly bright and like. Uh, just uh, it, it's a lot to take in with all the the sights and sounds of it. Yeah, it really is. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot to take in trying to watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, and and I appreciate Burton doing that on purpose, uh, doing that as a, a visual cue for how he felt growing up in Burbank, California, where uh, this neighborhood is uh, is supposed to be based on, even though the movie is actually shot largely in Tampa, Florida, and was uh, incredibly hot. For uh, for everybody involved, especially for uh, Johnny Depp, being in that full leather and makeup the entire time. Oh God, yeah, I feel uh, bad for him. Yeah, he uh, he had a rough go of it uh, being in that humidity 
at all times. But uh, I like the read. I like the idea of Edward being inspired by multiple people. I think that is a, a really good read on the movie. And uh, my read is just a, is a little bit different because I don't think that uh, I didn't read it as uh, Edward is based on necessarily multiple people, but that this is uh, the story of events that did happen to uh, to Kim and to her family. But the details around it, much like several characters in the uh, in the story of Big Fish uh, later, aren't exactly the way they happened. Like maybe Edward was this like weird kid uh, who you know lived alone, but his uh, like his uh, guardian or uh, grandfather or father, whoever it was that he was living with, uh, did die at some point, and he was left there alone and needed someone to like care for him so this family in the uh, in the local town uh took him in he was the he was always the weird kid and uh Winona Ryder's character Kim uh you know, eventually takes a liking to him after uh you know he's taken advantage of by uh pretty much everyone around him yes and that's that's a very believable and relatable thing, I think. Like people who are like naive, who are just trying to be part of a world that they don't really understand, uh, are taken advantage of by uh, by people like Jim, and uh, honestly by uh, other characters like Joyce, who is, uh, I think, one of the uh, worst antagonists in the film. Uh, she, at one point, is trying to seduce Edward, but she turns on him like. On a dime, actually, like in any oh, yeah. little misunderstanding happens, and all of a sudden, uh, Edward is back to or is like full pariah state. Uh, and this uh, this story does seem to take like a lot of elements from a lot of other fairy tales, uh, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, like uh, Pinocchio uh, or Frankenstein, if you will, uh, a little bit of uh, Romeo and Juliet and Beauty and the Beast. You know, all these all these little elements of these different fairy tales that I'm sure Kim heard growing up. And she kind of like puts her own uh, spin on it for this story that happened in her childhood, in her youth. And like it all culminated around Christmas time when something bad happened between Edward and Jim. And maybe Jim was accidentally killed by Edward. Like he didn't mean to do it. Uh, But, as a result, Edward was probably taken away and maybe even institutionalized, and she just never saw him again. It's a it's a tragic story at the end mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, so it kind of makes you wonder why would she tell that story to her young granddaughter? Yeah. Uh, but I but I think what you said was was right on the money. This is a morality tale about. Uh, not judging a book by its cover, by accepting people for who they are and not trying to turn them into something that they don't necessarily want to be. Yeah. Um, it's almost like uh, if you were to, you know, the, the book To Kill a Mockingbird talks about the, the significance of the title being it's a sin to kill a mockingbird because mockingbirds don't harm anyone. Yeah. It, and it's almost like, when, you know, of course, the, that book is about a lot more important issues than <clears throat> anything we're discussing today or anything we're qualified to discuss on any level. But sure. that uh, that idea of don't kill, 
you know, don't harm the people who are not harming anyone. And that's, it's, it's a great message, uh, within the movie. And, uh, I think that it's told, it's told so well because, uh, Burton is a, a masterful storyteller and yeah. he is sometimes uh, he was <laughs> so at, the, so at times he really, he really knows how to hit it out of the park, uh, mm-hmm. at times. And I feel like, uh, Edward Scissorhands is a great example of him taking an original story idea and just really running with it. Um, and turning it into something that's both uh, thematically and visually beautiful. Uh, and while we've we've debated the uh, the finer points of the story, like whether or not this was uh, a story that Kim was just making up, or was it maybe something that really happened and she was just embellishing it just a little bit? I mean, obviously there's probably not a dude running around with scissors for hands, but it makes for a nice uh, fairy tale visual. It does. Uh, now... Speaking of fairytale visuals, the creator of Edward Scissorhands in the movie is played by Vincent Price, and I believe this was his final movie, uh, because he was already in poor health by the time they filmed this. Right. Uh, He has no speaking lines whatsoever. But there are people who debate back and forth whether or not he created... uh, like artificial life from biological material, or did he take one of the previously made robots from his house that you see early uh, in a flashback scene and turn that into a, a humanoid like being uh, because there is a, uh, one of the robots who's working on an assembly line in the movie appears to have scissors for hands and is cutting up vegetables. Yes. Um, and that's the one that he kind of seems to focus in on. And I would say that would probably probably be the explanation for why this uh, this new creature has scissors for hands instead of like just having regular hands. Uh, so to me, that seems to suggest that uh, the inventor just modified one of his pre-existing robots and that Edward himself is indeed a mechanical being underneath all that leather. Uh, is that your read on it or am I, uh... I mean, that's re- that's my read on what the movie is saying. Uh, but that's what it's saying in the movie, in the movie within the movie. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah, that that's, uh, the story that, like, you got to look at it on, on the level of, well, there's the story that Kim is, is telling, and then in anything that happens inside the movie outside of that bedroom is is uh, a separate sub-story happening inside the main story. Yeah, and that being the case, at least we can all feel a little bit better uh, about some other jokes that have floated around about uh, Edward Scissorhands. He's mechanical. He does not have certain um, anatomy that would then become itchy, and he would not be able to do anything about it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, I, I, what I used to say is that the number of times in his life that he masturbated is definitely binary. <laughs> it was, it was just the once. <laughs> yeah, or the nuns. <laughs> or the nuns. There, there it is. Yeah, that was a zero sum game for uh, for poor Edward and uh, for anyone who might have accidentally walked in on that. Can you imagine the inventor having to fix that problem? Maybe that's the actual story of how he died. <laughs> oh God. Uh, poor, poor Edward, poor everyone who, whoever had that. Like thought. he walks, he walks in, he sees that 
and but he still has those hands that he made and he sees and he sees that going on and he and then he just like collapses from a heart attack he's like i brought these for you to do that with <laughs> he's like i never meant for you to circumcise yourself <laughs> oh god uh that's that's terrible um you know one one other thing that i would be very nervous about because uh i Maybe it's just me, but I, as I'm watching Edward throughout this uh, throughout this movie, he's a little shaky. Like he's yes. he's kind of like a, a scared puppy in a lot of scenes, and yet he also becomes a hairdresser. And I'm just like, man, I don't think I could sit there and let him go. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'm I'm gonna have to move to someone with steadier hands. I know that he's this is his natural state and everything, but that just scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm like I'm gonna lose. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like, you know, I'm I'm comfortable typing on a computer keyboard, but it's really weird if I try to just like hover my hand in place, it might start to shake a little bit. Yeah. So I think it's you got to look at it from that from that way. Like when he's in an uncomfortable situation, like talking to people or just standing there, then yeah, he's gonna be a little shaky. But when he's doing what he does, then he's just doing what he does. Yeah. uh, I mean, the most impressive thing to me, I think, is whenever he becomes a sculptor, like doing the the eye sculpture. I thought that was like some; those are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. Whenever he's making like these just like elaborate things, and that's what creates the snow effect. Uh, And that that's kind of the classic, and I think that's probably the go to whenever people talk about what's the most visually stunning part of Edward Scissorhands, and it's uh, Winona Ryder doing the uh, the spin around in the uh, the rim. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's the iconic. Yeah, that is the iconic image. Uh, it's it's still striking though. Like it is absolutely beautiful to this day, and I think oh, that uh, uh, it's one of the reasons I think that uh, when people look back on the '90s and say, you know, what movies visually still hold up really well, I think Edward Scissorhands is an easy one to slide in there and say this is a uh, this is a timeless kind of movie, uh, one that you could watch in uh, in any era and it still feel uh, relevant and it still be like, wow, this is just a, a visually beautiful movie. Uh, and, and you that, got that Danny Elfman score. My God, the, I think that's, I think Burton has actually referenced that one as being like his favorite of Elfman's, uh, original scores for his films. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's haunting stuff. Like when you listen to it, it's, it's beautiful. It, just sticks with you it's something that you can just listen to and it feels like a season to me you know certain scores of movies feel like they fit with a season of the year Mm -hmm. and this one feels like it fits winter perfectly it's like that's what this score was uh was really meant to fit with and uh i mean elfman would go you know he had already had uh uh several other major scores before that with Beetlejuice, Batman, and he would go on to have even more after that. But man, uh, Edward Scissorhands is one of those scores that definitely sticks with you. Uh, just a, a, a beautiful thing uh, to have accompanying the movie. I think it actually really makes several scenes, especially that scene with uh, Winona Ryder spinning. And then the, uh, the closing of the movie, I think it uh, is the part where it really like swells the emotional beats. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, now, what else did you want to to say about this movie? What else is uh, is sticking out in your head? I mean, that's about all I've got. Um, yeah, it's there's there's no take that I could have on the movie other than trying to come up like that that hasn't been already already been said before by a lot of people more eloquent than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely, and uh, I mean, same. It's uh, it's just a classic. It's one that everybody should absolutely go see. It holds up very well. Uh, there's lots of fun 
ambiguous things that you can watch for and debate later like we have we've talked about how we uh what our reads on the movie are and uh what we we think the messaging of it uh of it all is but i think that's what makes for some of the best movie watching experiences yeah is that ambiguity that not knowing exactly what the filmmaker necessarily intended or at least they've left it open enough that people watching the film can have their own interpretation of the events and still be able to take the, as you mentioned earlier, the larger morality point of uh, of the story. And of course, oh, yeah. I tell you one one thing that I do remember from the first time I saw it that has to do with interpreting events. Uh, there's the scene where Alan Arkin pours Edward a glass of scotch, <laughs> and he takes a sip, and he, but before he goes, "What is it?" He says, "It's lemonade." Uh, when I was a kid, I thought it was lemonade. <laughs> the, and i was like well lemonade effects in that bad the the innocence of a child watching oh, yeah. watching these movies because i mean there's so many events in this film that just went right over my head as a kid there are but but there's also things that were super impactful because i was, I was seven or eight and i didn't like that uh dude got stabbed and killed at the end so. uh yeah that that's a pretty traumatic scene i remember it being a lot more graphic Whenever yeah. I was younger, but then when you watch it as an adult, you're like, "Wow, this is really tame." <laughs> like this is not nearly as. Uh, uh, I think the reason it affected me is because they were high schoolers, so in my mind they were technically kids, and it shattered that illusion of kids are death proof in movies. Yeah, it did. Uh, now it's crazy to think that these are high schoolers. Like they're meant to be high schoolers in this movie, but watching it now, I'm like, man, Anthony Michael Hall was always forty years old, wasn't he? Yep. Well, except in like Breakfast except, Club and Weird Science, he sure. was ten in those. Yeah, he and was then like, he was forty for the rest of his life. Exactly, it was like he went from like ten years old to forty. It was like it was like the Jesus effect. Oh yeah, <laughs> we just skipped a whole chunk of Anthony Michael Hall's life. Um, and yeah, uh, but speaking of Alan Arkin, he was so hilarious in this movie. Uh, he, he was uh, one year. I think it was. I just watched this recently, and I, I went to Thanksgiving or. Just after Thanksgiving, so it was Christmas time, I showed up at my parents' house, and I'm just singing I Saw Three Ships Come Sailing In. I couldn't figure out why I was singing that song in that certain way, and it's because it's what it's what Alan Arkin is singing while he's putting the snow on the roof. I didn't even catch that before. Now i got to go back and rewatch oh, yeah. the I movie. I saw again. three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Now that you say it, I can't, I can't unhear it. I've got it in my head now. Oh, yeah, That's exactly what he's been doing this whole time. Yeah, it's a catchy song. It's not one you hear a lot. I sang it in uh, choir when I was 12. I saw it on Muppet Family Christmas, and I saw it in this movie. And that was it. <laughs> that, is, that is a crazy thing. I would never have put that together. It's in which Muppet movie did you say it was? Uh, it's Muppet Family Christmas. It was a TV special that actually had a crossover between the Muppets, Sesame Street, and Fraggle Rock. And it's about all of the characters going to hang out at Fozzie's mom's house for the weekend. I knew I remembered a crossover yeah. between Muppets and Sesame Street, but that's not the yeah. only time that's ever happened. No, it uh, happened in the Muppet movie as well. That's right. Uh, I was and like, then Kermit, of course, is, is in both worlds. That's true. Yes, he uh, he jumps between uh, between these worlds, so it's like there's the connecting factor. But like the yeah, but I think this was the first time that Fraggle Rock kind of entered in with that because it's the the premise. You know, they're all going to Fozzie's mom's house, but Fozzie's mom doesn't know they're coming for Christmas, so she's actually. Uh, she's actually leaving to go to Florida, and Doc from Fraggle Rock is house sitting for her with Man. his dog Sprocket. I got you. 
Well, there's there's some other little trivia for you. Some other uh, crossover. Never done TV Damn. You know, yeah. man, come on, Disney Plus. Come on. Seriously. Man. It's like, you guys own all of this now. Well, you don't really get... I don't know if they have Sesame Street or not. HBO. Uh, yeah, HBO's got that. So that's a Warner Brothers thing. Man, we may have some... There may be some crossover issues <laughs> between these two companies now. Uh, but that wraps up this first episode of 90 to Nothing, talking all about Edward Scissorhands. Uh, come back next time, and we'll be talking about another movie that's turning 30 years old this year. Now, we have yet to really decide what that movie is going to be, but uh, there are a couple of candidates up for uh, for grabs. Should yeah. we go ahead and name well, that? Or uh, Well, so, we, I mean, it, we could do Goodfellas, we could do Ninja Turtles... Trying to think of a good a good angle to take those from though. Uh, what about rewrite a different '80s cartoon as a movie in the style of Ninja Turtles? Summarize this movie. You know that could work. Like uh, there were a few '80s cartoons that I think could have made for uh, live action or better live action movies. And uh, to me, there's like as a big Ninja Turtles fan from uh, from way back. Uh, I I happen to I view this movie in a a certain way now that I probably didn't necessarily view it whenever I was a kid, and yeah. that's uh, that'll be a subject to certainly approach in the next episode. So yeah, we'll we'll talk a little TMNT the next time around, and then of course we're also going to get to uh, to Goodfellas later in this season. Uh, uh, there are several other you know 1990 movies that are turning 30. Uh, we we could pull Home Alone back out. That's a, a, a memory of our first episode. You know what? We might as well. I mean, this is the reboot. We got to we got to go back and right. and talk about that uh, that seminal Christmas classic. So you guys listen out the a Home Alone episode. Yeah, you said Simon. Simon. Simon Simon uh whoop. uh that's inappropriate to talk about with Home Alone, but uh but we'll We'll probably revisit that one. I think. I think we can go back and uh, really look at Home Alone through a through a different lens than we looked at it the uh, the first time we uh, we talked about it. So, listen out for that on this uh, this little old podcast network that we've got going for ourselves, and make sure you go and check out all the other shows that uh, that we've got going on. There's going to be new content coming periodically, like throughout all the weeks and months to come. But uh, thank you guys again for joining us here on 90 to Nothing. I'm Russell, that's Sam, and we'll talk with you guys again next time.